That is a good picture for the sermon today, and you will see why. After being crucified, Jesus, with his life blood draining out of him, prayed in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. After all of that persecution, after being beat and spat upon and falsely tried and falsely accused and shuffled one place to the next and scourged and all of that, Jesus some of his last words were, forgive them. Stephen, a faithful follower of Christ in the early church, was confronting some of the hard-hearted Jews. The Jews, many had come to repentance and faith during Pentecost, and shortly thereafter, the ones who had not come to Christ were kind of hardened. And so he hit them with a pretty hard sermon, tracing the, the salvation plan of God through history. And at the very end, he let them know that they had killed their own Messiah. These words pierced their hearts and cut them to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him and rushed upon him in one impulse, picking up stones. They began to stone him to death. And is his dying words as the last rock knocked the life out of him. He prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. St. Angelo was born in Jerusalem to Jewish Christian parents. He grew up, later went to Sicily to preach the gospel there. And there was a very rich, powerful, and evil man. He denounced him publicly. And shortly thereafter, that man with a bunch of ruffians came bursting into one of his sermons and stabbed him. St. Angelo laying on the ground, mortally wounded, looking to the angry face of the man who had just struck him with a mortal blow and said, I forgive you and died. All through church history, Christians have forgiven those who have sinned against them. Why? Because that's what Christians do. It's one of the manifestations of saving grace. When you realize what a great sinner you are and how you have failed the Lord so many times that Christ through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection has given you complete and total pardon. Then you find it in your heart to forgive others who have committed minor offenses against you. And even as we begin to grow as Christians, we we just see just how monstrous our sin is. And we are just really good at sinning. Our sins are like the sand of the seashore, the stars of the heaven. And they just become more apparent as we grow in grace. We just see more and more of, of, of sin and just everything we do. As one Puritan prayed, Lord, I repent of my repentance. I mean, you know, even when we're confessing, we need to confess of our confessing because it's just not good enough. And this is why true Christians find it in their hearts to forgive because they know they have been forgiven such a great debt. Of course, God also commands us to forgive. Jesus in Matthew 6.15 said, But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. In Mark 11.25, Jesus said, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. 
I mean, are we to love one another as Christians? Of course we are. We are to even love our enemies. And what does love do? Love does not take into account a wrong suffered, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 5. In Ephesians 4, 32, we are exhorted to be kind with one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In Colossians 3, 13, the word of God says we need to be bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You see, refusing to forgive is the characteristic of someone who doesn't love God because those who love God forgive. Why? Because they are forgiven. Paul describes unbelievers in Romans 131 as unloving and unmerciful. And in 2 Timothy 2 or 3, 3 as unloving and irreconcilable. You just refuse. I, I just refuse to show you mercy. I refuse to show you grace. I refuse to be reconciled with you. I will not forgive. Now, if you're a Christian, you must walk in the spirit, which means you must love. And if you must love, then you must forgive. And I know that the greater the sin and the more prolonged the sin, the harder it is to forgive. But this is what God calls us to do. And not only does he call us to do it, he gives us the grace to do it so that we can. I mean, what does the world think of us? When it hears of Christians getting a divorce because of irreconcilable differences. I mean, think about that. Truth be told, in most cases, the reason for divorce should read, I am a selfish, unloving, hateful person. I refuse to forgive my spouse, even though I swore a solemn oath before God and witnesses to love them unconditionally until death. And I have broken my vow. That, that's how it should read in almost every case. Other Christians will not speak to parents or siblings or friends or even others in the church. Why? Because they've been sinned against or they think they've been sinned against. And uh, somebody hasn't met up with their unspoken expectations and so they kind of become their own king and judge and executioner and they just you know pass their own laws and pass their own judgments and execute their own sentences because other people have hurt them and therefore they are going to hurt them back by giving them the cold shoulder ignoring them not speaking to them not being kind not loving them Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant to address this very issue. If you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this master who had a servant that just owed him this unpayable debt. Uh, just a huge that a whole lifetime couldn't repay. It was just gigantic. And the unforgiving servant pleaded in the Master extended mercy and forgave him. Shortly thereafter, that same servant found one of his fellow workers and began to choke him. And had him thrown into prison because he owed him a very small debt. And then the parable concludes with this rebuke in Matthew 18 verses 33 and 35. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Jesus says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. An unforgiving heart in the life of a Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. It's something that just can't happen. It is not to happen. It does not give glory to God. It's a disease and it spreads to other people like leaven in the church. And soon other people, if they see you and you aren't forgiving, well, then it's okay if they don't forgive too. An unwillingness to forgive hatches out an entire zoo of vicious animals that tear the church apart. And we're going to be seeing some of these this morning. In Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, what happens is, is, Jesus has been preaching and like he always does and and tax collectors and sinners are coming under conviction. They're repenting of their sin and they're coming to Jesus in faith and he's receiving them. And meanwhile, the Pharisees and scribes are looking upon these sinners coming to Jesus and they're pretty incensed about it. I mean, after all, these people are the openly rebellious. These are the people that have sinned against the law of Moses. These are the people who have for years, maybe their whole life, not submitted to God. And they see these people as highly offensive, even blasphemous. How dare they come to God after what they've done? Well, they're blind to their own sin, aren't they? I mean, they had the law. They knew the scriptures and yet they weren't living godly lies. Oh, they were doing all the external deeds, but internally things weren't right. They're kind of like this beautiful apple with a rotten core. Instead of humbly repenting of their sin, they grew angry and bitter towards others who did. And so Jesus rebukes them with three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son. And we're looking at that last parable, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. And we've been working our way through the text. The prodigal started out very selfish, asked his father a very shameful thing for his inheritance early. And his father gave it to him. He couldn't give him the land inheritance. Um, We're going to talk about this more next week. We've already talked about it. He couldn't give him the land inheritance because that wasn't fully transferred until the father died. But he did get whatever liquid assets he could and immediately left to a distant country, a Gentile country, to squander his inheritance on sinful living, which he made short work of, plunging himself into ruin. Then finding himself in poverty, his famine struck that land and All of his friends abandoned him and he was then alone suffering the consequences of his own sin in a country that was hurting under famine. And he came to his senses by God, grace, repented of sins, his sins and turned to home. As he approaches his home, the father is there. The father's been looking and watching and waiting and gladly receives him and hugs him and kisses him. And not only that, he Closes, clothes him with the best of robes, puts a golden ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet, has the fatted calf killed and invites the whole town to the feast. 
And this is all a picture of God's grace towards sinners who repent. And then we come to our text for this morning. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke 15 and follow along as I read verses 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field when he came and approached the house. He heard music and dancing and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be, could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours that you have never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has become to live and was lost and has been found. Now from this section, I discovered eight ungodly attitudes displayed by the older brother. We're going to look at the first four this morning so that you can know how not to act towards other sinners who have repented. The first is don't have an angry, bitter, unforgiving heart. Look at verse 25. Now his older, his older son was in the field. No, what was he doing there in the field? That, that means he was out maintaining the property, his inheritance. You know, when you have a big piece of land, there's always fences to mend and irrigation ditches to clear out and, you know, trees to trim and sheep to shepherd and whatever he's doing, he's out on this large estate working the land, making it profitable, keeping it in good shape. Look at the middle of verse 25 and verse 26. And when he, that is the older son, came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began acquiring what these things could be. There was a party going on. And the Greek word translated music here is the Greek word symphonia. I guess what word we get that from. I mean, he approaches the house. There's a symphony, an orchestra. You know, there's it's going for it, man. There's a party. The whole town's invited. People are celebrating. And he's tired. He's been out in the field. He's been working. Maybe he's gone two or three days. He's, he comes back and when he returns, he, he finds the whole town in celebration at his house. And he was never invited. Nobody ever told him about that. He asked, what in the world is going on? He's slightly offended that all the celebration is happening. He was hoping to just come home and get cleaned up, have some food and get some rest. Now there's this big party going on and he wasn't invited. No one even told him. So he asked the servant what's happening. And in verse 27, look there, we read, he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. The word translated anger here describes a swelling, rising, accumulating fury or wrath. It's kind of begins in a stew and just ends in an eruption, which we're going to see. It irritated him 
that his brother, first of all, shamed his father, got his inheritance, squandered it in loose living in another town and walked away from his third of the estate. Remember, he would get two-thirds as the older brother or the younger brother, one-third. And so when the younger brother left, they didn't know if he was ever going to come back. And so now he's taking care of the whole spread. And maybe he hopes he's going to get the whole spread. And now the wayward brother's back. And not only is he back, the father didn't go out there and say, what are you doing back? But actually receives him back and gladly and has a huge celebration, invites the whole town. And be assured that when Jesus is giving this parable, the Pharisees and scribes are feeling it. They are feeling the knife blade go in. And maybe you're feeling that way a little bit. You know, sometimes when people have sinned for a long time out in the world, rolled in the mud of all that's out there, They just don't get cleaned up all of a sudden. I mean, think about it. You come to Christ, you're perfect the next day. We just don't get that sanctified that quick, do we? I mean, we wish we could speed up the process even. Somebody comes to Christ, they come in, they might not be dressed quite like you wish they were. They might not have the habits you wish they did, and they just don't change overnight. I mean, they're messed up. They got issues like the rest of us. And you can't expect somebody to come to Christ and be instantly perfect, instantly sanctified. It never happens that way unless they come to Christ and die right after that. Spurgeon says, quote, certain Christians that I know who have always been very proper often have little sympathy with those who have been great sinners. They seem as if they do not want to see such people as these brought to the Savior. Why? They exclaim, there are girls from the street and men who have been burglars and all sorts of people brought into the church. Amazing. Let's just say one day you're, it's a Friday, you're trying to get home so you can just take the weekend off and... You're kind of rushing home. You're not being a very careful driver. You kind of plow through an intersection. All of a sudden, there's a car there that you didn't even see, and it runs into you, and there's a huge crash, and you come spinning into the opposite lane where another truck plows into you, knocks your car upside down. You're sliding down the road on the roof. Your car is mangled. You're injured. You've got lacerations and internal bleeding and broken bones and a severe concussion, and there you are. Seriously wounded. Glass everywhere. There's gasoline leaking from the tank on your upside down car. You're kind of just hanging there, delirious from the concussion, upside down, suspended in your seatbelt. And soon you hear sirens and you see all sorts of flashing lights and people with uniforms walking around and you're so glad that they're finally there and You're barely conscious, but you hear two policemen complaining that they wish you could have gotten the accident just a little bit later because they're about ready to go off their shift. And you see several firemen standing back with kind of disgruntled looks on their face going, listen, if we if we try using the jaws of life and we we use the the, the cut saw here, we might create a spark. we'll, We'll burn ourselves up. The two paramedics are kind of peeking in the window and they go, man, there's a lot of blood in there. We just got our new uniforms. 
And the ambulance driver says to his partner, oh, man, this one's going to take forever. We're probably going to miss several runs. We're going to lose money on this one. I mean, how would you feel if you were in that car? It were cared for? Loved? Listen, rescuing people in life-threatening situations is never convenient. And it's never easy. It's hard work. It's dirty. It's risky business. And whenever you read in your Bible the word save or saved, you can substitute this in every instant. Rescue or rescued. That's what it means to be rescued from sin, from eternally life-threatening sin. And when people live in their sin for years, they are, they, they're, they're messed up by it. I mean, you know it because you're one of them. Sin messes you up. And maybe people who have just come to Christ, their speech isn't all that good and their dress may not be all that wonderful. And, you know, they haven't learned how to speak Christianese yet and fit into the church culture. So they kind of stick out a little bit. But helping them grow in the Lord is, is necessary. Think of all the people who helped you grow in the Lord. Think of all those people, you know, one of the things after you've known Christ for a while and you look back on your life and you think of those people who spend so much time with you and were so patient with you when you thought you knew everything and didn't know anything. And how they kept talking to you and encouraging you and meeting with you and admonishing you and reminding you over and over and over again. I mean, that's why we need to practice the one another's in the church because we're all messed up by sin. And this is no reason to despise somebody. Listen, man, look at that guy just came to Christ. Look at his hairdo. Look at her dress. I mean, could you call that modest? I heard that guy does this. I heard they do that. They work at this place. Listen, if you have known the Lord for a while, you're the fireman, you're the policeman, you're the paramedic, you're the ambulance driver. You are the rescuers. For those who come in this door, you're to be out and about trying to find people who are death trapped in their sin and who realize it and bring them in and then minister to them. You know, when you're a Christian, you grow to hate your sin and this is good. I mean, just think about whatever the favorite sin is in your life that you hate, that you wish would go away, but just can't seem to get over. Think of how many times you've dealt with that. For how long have you dealt with that thing? Sometimes when we have sins in our life that bother us, and we fight against them and fight against them and memorize verses and go to great extremes to pound those things back and get them suppressed in our life, Now, when somebody else comes in and they display those sins, we can kind of despise them because they're just like we are. They're just like the part of us that we hate. And so without realizing it, we can say, look at that person. And then we realize, oh, yeah, they're they're just like I am. Only not quite as far along in their walk with the Lord. 
Paul says in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Beware of that bitter, angry, unforgiving heart, because that will lead to so many other problems in your life and in this church. And we see the second one. Don't be self-righteous. Look at the end of verse 28. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And this is great. I like the father here. This is, these parables are so precise. You know, the father went out to meet the prodigal when he came back. And now he's going out to meet the older son when he comes back. The prodigal had sins of passion. The older son has sins of attitude. Spurgeon commented, quote, I never know which to admire more, the love of the father going out to meet the returning prodigal or in going out to talk with his cold-hearted elder brother. That's kind of true, isn't it? It's like, yeah, no, that is right. That is amazing that he would go out to either of them. But he goes out to both. Look at verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, look. For so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And just stop right there. Notice the older brother sees his labors as slavery. The word here serves in the Greek is slaving. He's been slaving. Listen, you're just a foolish taskmaster. You've been telling me what to do all of my life. I've been doing everything you asked me to do. He, he is furious. He, he, he doesn't even get it. He, he's missing this huge thing called grace. He has no understanding of that concept. Not only that, he sees himself as perfect. I mean, the guy's easy in the running to be the Messiah and savior of the world. I have never neglected a command of yours. Really? You're perfect? Yeah. That's self-righteousness. I mean, that's a pretty screaming case of it. G. Campbell Morgan commenting on the older son says, quote, look at this elder son. And what do we find? He was devoted to his father's law and he was devoted to his father's service, but he was entirely out of sympathy with his father's heart and therefore was unable to set the true value upon his brother, end quote. In other words, he didn't understand grace. He didn't understand mercy. He, he had all the external actions, but no love of God in his heart, no love for his brother, his blood brother. He was your classic legalist, doing all the right things on the outside, but none of the right things on the inside. I mean, it's not like all of those good external acts he did were wrong. Those are good. You know, when we, when we love the Lord and we're serving, those, those are all good things. We need to do it. Grace doesn't mean become a antinomian, one who doesn't live by any law, any rules, just does whatever he wants. But I'm telling you, You got to have a heart to go with the action. The actions must be driven by a proper heart. You worship God in spirit, your heart and truth, not just the truth part. 
There's got to be the proper motive because you can have ungodly motives that drive the proper actions, right? Do them all for the wrong reason, to earn your salvation, to try and show off before other people, to appear a certain way before men. And so this older son is rotten to the core. Mark Twain described people like this saying he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. A lot of people who are good men in the worst sense of the word. He was a card carrying obeyer, but inside empty. So beware of self-righteousness because it's an expression of pride. The self-righteous person always thinks they deserve better. They're always getting the raw end of the deal. The self-righteous person has this sinful heart attitude because they're unforgiving towards others. They are unwilling to forgive others. Why? Because they're wrong and I'm right. They're sinful and I'm holy. They blew it and I obeyed. Self-righteousness. And it's blinding. We often don't see it in ourselves because we're right. Matthew Henry comments, quote, by the elder brother here, we may understand those who are really good and have been so far from their youth up and have never went astray into any vicious course of living who comparatively need no repentance. He goes on to say, those who are comparatively innocent seldom know how to be compassionate towards those who are manifestly penitent. I mean, you may have grown up in a Christian home and you never did that. You never went astray and you never dressed like that or spoke like that or did those deeds. And somebody comes in and they're just beginning to get over those sins. They've been entangled with all their life and go, man, what is wrong with that person? Why are we letting that person in here? That person is a sinner. And implied in that statement is, and I'm not. Let's say it's a bright spring morning when somebody comes into the foyer and you've never seen them before. They're perhaps a visitor here for the first time. And maybe their dress isn't quite what it should be. And they're a little flashy or their hairdo is a little extravagant. Their whole appearance kind of says, focus on me, not God. And you're kind of instantly disgusted with them. You see them from a distance and the first thought is, oh, what are they doing here? If that's your first thought, you probably have a case of self-righteousness. I mean, keep in mind, that person might not even know the Lord. Should we expect them to live like Christians when they aren't, when they don't have the Holy Spirit? I don't know the word of God. I mean, they don't know the Lord, but you do. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, but you do. They don't know the scriptures, but you do. They've never heard a sermon, but you've heard thousands. So you're going to condemn them because they are not like you. I hope not. You want to cast stones at somebody with a mere glance. I mean, they don't know Christ. They're held captive by Satan to do his will. They're blind. They're spiritually dead. They're in need of rescue. And you're the one who's supposed to rescue them, not kill them. Not complain. Look at them in the car. They're bloody. 
This could be a problem. Oh, this is going to be a, oh, this is going to take some time. And so we can't condemn them for being what we used to be and still are to some degree. Spurgeon notes, quote, there are some kinds of Christians who always feel that when there is a sinner introduced in the church, well, I hope that it will turn out to be a genuine case. And always that is the first thought. They're afraid that it cannot be. They have never sinned in that way. They have been kept by the grace of God from outward transgression, and they are half afraid to hear of these outrageous sinners being brought in with so much joy being made over them, end quote. I mean, is there a wonder why they are the way they are? And, you know, if you throw stones, you know, you just, then the preacher has to come up and ask you some questions. So how's your prayer life? How's your Bible reading, study, scripture memory? How is your giving How's your serving? How's your gospel sharing? Shall we talk about how you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself all the time? You say, well, could we like change the subject? I mean, I feel the temperatures rising in here. And what's the problem? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The delusion that you are all good and others are all bad. To see yourself as sinless. And other people as great sinners. But what does the word of God tell us? In Genesis 6, 5, describing mankind before the flood, it says that every intent of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continuously. That's pretty bad. And then in Genesis 8, 21, it goes on to say that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In 1 Kings 8.46, Solomon says there is not a man who does not sin. And in Psalm 51.5, David says we are brought forth and conceived in iniquity. And in Psalm 58.3, that the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. In Jeremiah 17.9, it says the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Romans 3.23, it says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And James 2.10 says the one who knows the law and keeps it all perfectly, but breaks it in one point is guilty of all. In first John one, eight says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's just a sampling. We're all sinners. And there's only two kinds of people in the church. Sinners, great sinners saved by grace and sinners who have not been saved by grace. And that's all there is. And you're one of them. And so beware of that self-righteous heart that condemns others for being what you at least were, except for the grace of God. And probably still are to one degree or another. Third, don't be jealous of what God gives others. Look at the end of verse 29. The son says, and yet you have never given me a so that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice he didn't even mention the calf. You gave him the fatted calf and you didn't give me the goat. The scrawny little goat. And he's jealous, isn't he? All this attention is being given to the prodigal 
And the prodigal, who was the one who was openly rebellious and did all these outward acts of ungodly behavior, and now they're celebrating his return, his repentance. But see, they don't see that they have always done inward deeds, inward deeds of rebellion. Our thoughts, our hearts are corrupt. We always do sinful deeds. The word translated jealousy describes an intense, fierce, zealous envy and covetousness or desire to have something that someone else has. And, you know, there's a couple degrees of, of jealousy. There's a good jealousy. You know, God even calls himself jealous in Exodus 34. I am the Lord whose name is jealous. God is jealous for his glory. A husband should be jealous for the affection of his wife. We should be zealous to see God glorified. You know, those are things that are good. But there's another kind of jealousy that begins to covet what somebody else has. And the worst degree is not only to covet what somebody else has, but to to wish they don't have it and you have it. They not only didn't like that the prodigal and these sinners, the Pharisees, the older brother, they didn't like it that these sinners were being received. They wanted that attention. They wanted that celebration be given to them in place of. So beware of jealousy. Maybe you've grown up in the church all of your life and you have served faithfully and, you know, this is your home. I mean, you know everybody here. You know every story that ever happened and this is kind of your turf. You've got your own Sunday school class and then all of a sudden some young sprout whippersnapper comes popping into church and he's only known Christ, you know, for two years. He's on fire for the Lord. And truth be told, he's a far better teacher than you are. And he's just new in the Lord. And somebody asks him to teach and everybody goes, man, he is good. And there's all these people commenting over and over and you keep hearing people saying, oh man, that was great. That was great. I was like, oh, wow. But you never hear him saying that about your lesson. And as he teaches more and more, pretty soon, well, you've noticed what whenever he teaches, more people come than when you teach. And pretty soon he's getting advanced and you are being set aside and you're kind of jealous because God's grace has given him that gift and God hasn't given you that gift. He's getting attention and you're not. He's getting praised and you are not. That's jealousy. Not only do you want it, you don't want them to have it. You remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20? Jesus went after this so clearly. It was just, these parables are great. Laborers in the vineyard, the master says, yeah, go out there and hire some people to work the vineyard. It's harvest season. We've got to get these things in. They go out. Hire a bunch of workers. They come in, they're working in the vineyard. The owner says, you know what? This, this isn't good enough. Go, go hire some more. A couple hours later, they hire some more. He says, you know what? We're not going to get down. Go get some more. They get some more. They get some more. All day long, they're hiring people. And some people are only hired like an hour before it's the end of the day. And then at the end of the day, you remember what happens. The master says, I want you to pay all the workers. And I want you to start with the ones who've only been here an hour. And so they're all there and the people who have been slaved all day are all tired and worn out. 
And they see these ones who have only been there one hour getting a full day's wage. And this is how Jesus concludes the parable. These laborers say, this is Matthew twenty twelve through 16. These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us and have borne, we've borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours. If I wish to give to this last man the same as you, is that not not lawful for me to do what I wish with that which is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. You have to realize you want fair, you get help. You want grace, then be quiet. (laughs) Because grace is undeserved and unearned. So God has given you a gift. Praise God for that. If he's given you a great gift, praise God for that. If he's given you a ministry behind the scenes, praise God for that. If he gives you one up front, praise God for that. Why? Because it's all of grace. It's not like you deserved it. That you earned your spiritual gift. It was given to you. Not only were you saved by grace, you're given gifts by grace and you're sanctified by grace. And so what are you complaining about? That God was generous with what that which is his own. And you're envious because somebody else has some sort of gift or thing or blessing that you don't have. Paul says in Romans 13 Verses 13 and 14, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Paul describing the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 and 20 says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy and goes on to list some more and then says of such i forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of god it's not christian behavior james makes this clear in james chapter 3 verses 14 and 16 where he says but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. We don't want demonic disorder, every evil thing in the church. Jealousy is the black plague that strikes on Sundays at high noon. Don't let it strike you. Remember... That everything you have is by grace. You never earned it and you never deserved it. Jealousy is demonic and it's not from God. Four, don't hate others. Look at verse 30. But when this son of yours came to stop there, notice how he doesn't even call him his brother. This son of yours. He won't even admit he's related to him. He's not loving his brother. Maybe he never did. 
And I've sat in my office and talked to married couples who refer to each other in that way. In the far demonstrative sometimes, you know what that is? That and those. They refer to each other as that man or that woman. There's a near demonstrative, this man and this woman, speaking of things close by, now, these women. So you have, you can say this woman, that, that means at least they're close, but they don't even use that. Not only do they not acknowledge, though they're married, that they are married, but they don't even acknowledge the person's in the room. So, so what do you think the problem? Well, that man or that woman, it, oh, wait a second here. You mean the person that you're married to sitting a foot away from you in that other chair? The one that you swore to love and cherish until death you part that person? Mm. Okay, carry on. <laughs> but that's what happens, isn't it? When we begin, when we're unforgiving, we, we begin to have this hatred. It's really just hatred. The absence of love is hatred. I mean, we're humans, and so we all have feelings, and feelings get hurt, and emotions go up and down. But listen, love is a decision of the will. If you look at Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, you will see that love is patient. In other words, love chooses to be patient. Love chooses to be kind. Love is not provoked. It chooses not to be provoked. You know, all those things it says that it is not jealous. It chooses not to be jealous in an evil way. It does all of those things by choice, by the exertion of the will. There's no emotions in the list, and it's a big list. Not a single emotion. Now, we're going to have emotions because we're people, but love is not defined by emotion. So when somebody says, listen, you know, I'm mad at you, or I'm going to give you the cold shoulder, what they're really saying is I refuse to love you, and the opposite of love is what? It's hate. The Apostle John addressed this head on in his first epistle. You can't read through the book without seeing it all over the place. He said in 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, the one who says, I'm in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He can't even see what he's doing because he's in the dark. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Where did he get that? Oh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 1 John 4, 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Hatred towards one's brother or sister in Christ, an unwillingness to love somebody, forgive them, be kind to them, is not Christian behavior. It's carnal, it's wicked, it's selfish. And we need to deal with it in our own life. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. They got to see it. People have to see your love for one another. That is how we make a visual impact on the world. Well, that is four of them. Beware of an angry, bitter, unforgiving heart. Beware of a self-righteous attitude towards other. Beware of being what 
being envious about what God chooses to give others and don't hate your brother or sister in Christ. That's half the list. If you're struggling with these things, all you got to do is just confess your sins to God. Just confess them to God. And God will forgive you. And then keep pressing on. If, if you find them keep springing up, then get some help. Memorize some scriptures. Have somebody hold you accountable. You need to have people who love you enough in your life who say, you know, that's not kind. That's not loving. You need to do that, you know, and you need to just deal with it and humble yourself. Now, if you're sitting out there and you realize, you know what? I've been unloving all my life. I've been bitter all my life. I've been jealous all my life. Everything you're talking about, this older brother is me. Then maybe you need to come to know Christ. Probably don't know Jesus. You say, well, I know Jesus. Well, I am sure you probably know about Jesus. There's not too many people. I don't think I've ever ran into somebody who said, Jesus who? Everybody knows a little bit about Jesus. But even the demons, James says in James 2.19, believe in God. But they're terrified. They have an orthodox view of Jesus. That that doesn't make you a Christian. Having an orthodox view or coming to church or reading your Bible or serving in ministry or giving or doing deeds. That doesn't make you a Christian. I hope you understand that. Understand that. There are many churches out there today and they aren't telling people how to become Christians. They tell them what to do. And there's always a confusion because whenever you hear the scriptures, it's always telling us to do these things and not do these things. And and then if you don't do these things, like we read in John, then, then, then you're in the darkness. And you can think in your mind, well, that's because I need to do these things so I can be a Christian. No, no, no. You become a Christian and then do the things which show that you have the saving grace of God working in your life. Those things don't make you saved. They're manifestations of being saved. We've had quite a few people come to our church, especially recently, who have told me things like, you know, the church I used to go to, they never preached the gospel. They never preached the gospel. You know, they talk about the love of God and receiving the love of God into your life. And where's the gospel? How? Does a person get saved? You know, Paul did say that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. So if you don't know the gospel, you can't be saved. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. That God is a holy and just God and he must punish sin. And guess what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Have we just learned? That's the beginning of the gospel. Why? Because if you don't realize you need rescued... You aren't going to try and get saved. You're in a lot worse condition than a person upside down in a mangled car with body issues. You you are on your way to hell if you don't know Christ and you need rescued. You need rescued. Now, the question is, so, so how is it that I get rescued anyways? Well, first... You need to realize God is holy and must punish sin. You are the sinner, so you need rescued. Secondly, you need to realize what Jesus did. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, escaping that sin nature, which we all have because we are in Adam, but Christ is not. He has God as his father. He then lived a perfect life on this earth, taught, healed the sick, gave the teaching that we're now studying. 
And then he willingly gave himself up as a sacrifice for sinners. He died in our place. He died the death we should have died. He died as a substitute. The wrath of God was poured out on him. As I like to think of whenever we're having communion, he was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. In other words, Jesus took upon himself the punishment we deserved. He became the lamb of God. Dying in the place of sinners who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's the other part. You need to understand the work of Christ that he came, willingly offers himself up as a sinless sacrifice, died and then rose again on the third day. Now, there are still people who understand all of that. If you were to give them a quiz, they get all that right. They're still not saved. Why? They understand they need rescue. They understand the gospel. But then when it comes down to appropriating the gospel, how do you get a hold of that saving gospel message? Instantly, their mind runs to, I've got to come to church. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to be good. Uh, and that's not how you get saved. He never saves anybody by works. He only saves them by grace. No one can be saved by works. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved by faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, not just an intellectual belief, but a trusting belief, a belief that grabs on to Christ and says, I am trusting in you and your work alone to save me because I am a sinner. Please save me because I cannot save myself. Now, when you do that, you are born again. You become a new creature in Christ. All of a sudden, the Bible starts making sense. You find this joy in your heart that you never had before. You're excited to be at church. You're excited to learn about God. You want to serve. You want to tell other people about Jesus. Your whole life changes. And it's just it's so cool. If you don't know that, and you just come to church and go through the motions, and there's no joy, and there's no love, and there's no victory over sin... It might be that you just don't know Jesus and you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved. Because he came, died, was buried, and rose again. He shed his blood so that sinners, like the prodigal, like the older brother, could go free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. And we just pray, Father that you would continue to grow us more into the image of Christ. Father, all of us see the sins of the older brother in our life, whether we know Christ or not. We all are those sheep who go astray, each turning to our own way, and though we may do it less than others, we still do it, and we're still guilty. But Father... We also know that Jesus died for sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that once we have Jesus's blood applied to us, we are justified. We are declared to be right in your sight, though we're still sinners in practice. Yet we have all the grace we need to live for you and all the forgiveness we need to cover our transgressions until that time we die or are called home to be with you in the rapture. Father, I pray if there is somebody here who doesn't know you, may they turn their hearts right now to Christ in faith and just say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he died for me, was buried and rose again on the third day. And Father, may you cause them to turn from their sins, to believe in that truth, that you might cause them to be born again 
to a new and living hope. Father, we pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.